Dr. Brett Shannon is my guest today on the Scholars Podcast. Brett is completing a PhD in Applied Epidemiology at the University of Illinois. He has a particular interest in improving the health and wellness of Indigenous Australians. And I'm very pleased to say he's joining me today from Canada. Brett, welcome to the program. Get ahead, Justin. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, why are you in Canada? Right. Good question. Before we go on, do you mind if I just, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're both broadcasting from and pay my respect to Indigenous elders, both Please. Yes. past and present. Um, and like you said, I'm in Ontario. I'm actually in a beautiful part of the world in Niagara Falls. Um, it's semester break in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. And I'm here because my partner's family are from Niagara Falls. Never been to Canada. What's it like up there? It's winter's just passed, so it's just coming into summer now. So it's a beautiful part of the year, but unfortunately, Ontario has been in a lockdown for about six months because of COVID. How I was going to ask how um, how badly affected has um, has Canada been? We hear a lot about the United States, not so much about Canada. Yeah, not too good of late. Uh, Ontario just had its second wave that sort of peaked at around mid-April. Um, so we've had a lockdown in Ontario pretty much since start of January. Um, so no hairdressers, no restaurants open. Um, it's just essential services, really. And the good news is it's, it's turned a corner now in May. Um, the vaccine rollout has improved. I actually got my first shot of Pfizer last weekend. How was that? Yeah. Good. Um, glad to get it. Glad to get it. Infection-free so far, which is nice. And like I said, the numbers are coming down, so it is looking good. And Canada's hoping to reopen everything in June. So, when you're uh, when you're studying in um, in Chicago, are you on campus, or what's how's how has that worked out? So it hasn't been on campus, but it's looking like everything will be reopened in Chicago in August. Uh, when when the university opens back up. Um, so everything's been asynchronous of late, uh, which is online essentially. And, yeah, looking forward to actually meeting everyone in person. <laughs> which you've not done yet. No. <laughs> Must be a bit hard. You know, you, you get this great scholarship, you're heading overseas to your university of choice and you can't go. Yeah, it's been a difficult start. Um, so it started in January this year and... I was supposed to be back leaving to go back to Australia this week and the flights got cancelled and then the, the quarantine issues, so I couldn't get back to Australia, unfortunately. Right. What, were you, what were you going to do back here? So I wanted to go back to my employer in Brisbane and do some clinical practice um, with Phoenix Occupational Medicine, who I work for, and I also had an awards evening tonight in Canberra. Um, that I was supposed to be there for for the National Rehab Awards. Okay, well let's let's unpack um, your your life and your career. If we look at your PhD studies at the moment, uh, what are you what are you actually studying? So to put it into sort of perspective for you, so my background's in medicine. I trained as a junior doctor in Brisbane for the last couple of years, and now I'm an advanced registrar in occupational medicine. In Australia, and the PhD is really to sort of at the next stage um, in that before I finish training and become a consultant. So there's a couple of arms to the PhD, but the the crux of it is really 
doing a, a lot of work to try and improve occupational injury outcomes and the prevalence of occupational injuries in Australia and overseas. Um, the first part of the, the PhD is looking at a lot of data in, in America and Australia and um, creating some multifactorial models around who's getting injured in these countries, why they're getting injured and who's having bad outcomes and who's having good outcomes and how can all this information be used to influence policy and clinical practice um, for day-to-day -day work for clinicians. So that, that's sort of the, the first part of the PhD. And the second part, Justin, is working with another group um, who sit under the World Health Organization Collaborating, Collaborating Center for Occupational Health in Chicago. So this team runs an education program on occupational health for developing countries to try and improve the capacity uh, in occupational health for these countries where we know they have a significant burden um, of occupational disease. So working with that team to evaluate that program and see if we can instill some education programs similar to that one in Australia to sort of broaden the capacity of occupational health. And then the third aspect of the PhD is doing some work with the Black Lung Centre for Excellence, who are a group who actually, actually already have a relationship with Australia and with the Australian government. Okay, so what, what was it then, Brett, that made you first interested in this field of study? Justin, it definitely wasn't sort of a linear career pathway. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't, yep. wasn't one of those medical students that had decided what they wanted to go into. Okay. Um, I think the Australian system is, is set up good. It's it's set up so that junior doctors get to try various specialties before they yep. decide what to go into. I did a lot of cardiology and emergency medicine for a few years to try and hone my clinical skills, and I just found those areas interesting. And then I, I sort of had a bit of a turning point in 2018 where I went into a talk um, at a conference in Hawaii on regional models of care and then went to Alaska with a contingent from the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health in Brisbane mm. and we did a re review of their clinical models of care um, and they have some fascinating models of care that I'm happy to discuss as well but sort of came back from those experiences and decided I wanted to continue to practice clinically, but also wanted to continue to do more public health work and look at some of these global and national problems um, from a public health lens. And this specialty sort of fits both, where I get to do the public health work, but I also get to practice and, and see patients, which is what I love. And did that light the fire to for you, um, I suppose, professionally and personally to apply for the scholarship and and have a crack at um, doing your PhD? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the reasons. I've also got some great mentors who have really taken me under their wing the last couple of years and given me a lot of autonomy and um, pushed me in this direction. They, they know how, how important Indigenous health is to me and how important public health is as well. Mm. Um, so they were very supportive in applying and helping me maintain clinical practice while I can go and and do this research because they know how important it is for the Australian public. What was Alaska like? I, I, I love watching those, you know, documentaries of either people living off the grid up there or just the the nature documentaries. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, how long did you How long did you spend up there? Not too long on that trip. That was a very quick, um, okay. maybe two week trip. Yeah, but it was in the middle of summer, which is an interesting place to be. Their summer was probably about 
19, 20 degrees during the day. Mm-hmm. And I think the sun set for an hour every night. Um, <laughs> yeah. So lovely people, um, still a bit cold for me, mm. but their their clinical model of care was really fascinating in a, that it was quite different to Australia where our primary healthcare model is fee-for-service and say you were injured or ill one day, Justin, you'd go and see your GP and get some medicine or get treated. Yep. They... They have more of an NHS UK model where each doctor is delegated about 1,200 patients from the public and uh, you're delegated or you choose a doctor and each doctor's got a team that consists of a nurse, a physio, another allied health provider and maybe an admin officer and that team sort of takes care of you um, 24-7 on a day-to-day basis. But what was interesting about their model is their primary healthcare system was was very in tune with their hospital system in that uh, if, say, you went to emergency department one night at 3 a.m. because you had an asthma attack, um, even though it was quite mild, and went home, that primary healthcare team would know about it and they would see that as a problem and throw a lot of resources at you um, to try and avoid those presentations to ED. So it's quite a good model and it was, yeah, quite interesting. Do you think Australia could learn a lot from uh, what you've seen in overseas jurisdictions? I think what I've seen overseas, firstly, is around sort of the evidence base and the data that's used in in the health systems. I think a lot of people from Australia say to me, why are you going to America to do a PhD in health? Like their health system is yeah. no good. And some parts of that's true, but their data systems are much, much better than ours in many ways. Um, and, and that's one of the things I learned very quickly is how they use data, how they manipulate it to inform clinical care. Um, and it's good in some areas, not good in some areas as well. Um, but that was one of the key lessons from Alaska, how they use data to see who they're missing um, between the hospital system and the, the primary healthcare system and how they use it to sort of influence who needs a lot of resources acutely. It's a good observation you make as a, as a doctor um, you, you're seeing firsthand the differences in the clinical care models. Everything you hear in Australia is that the US health system is nowhere near as good as Australia's. In many ways, it's not. We, we have an excellent healthcare system. Um, I think my field is a bit left of centre and it's, it's in a, a different position in that workers' compensation data and medical data in, in occupational health is not really readily linked to hospital data or linked to any other health data really. So it's sort of out on its own. And that's why it makes it quite tricky to uh, develop interventions with good data in this area. What was it that made you choose Chicago uh, to study? Because you would you would have had, uh, getting that scholarship, you would have had any institution in the world to, to look at, to study, to study at. Uh, the University of Illinois is a very interesting choice. Take us through your decision-making process around that. Yeah, the, the foundation actually mentioned to me that that I was their first scholar who okay. uh, <laughs> was in the University of Illinois. Yeah. Um, so I got uh, quite a few offers from different universities, some mm-hmm. much more well-known than this one. Um, but there was a couple of reasons. Firstly was what I just mentioned earlier was They have the World Health Organization Collaborating Center in my field in Chicago Mm -hmm. and the Black Black Lung Center for Excellence. 
which are the, the global experts in, in coal miners' lung disease. So that was, that was an important decision for me to work with those two groups. And the second, I think, was as, as soon as my application was given to them, they had four professors or associate professors contact me from the department and one actually visited me in person in Brisbane, who's the director of the Black Lung Centre for Excellence. And I think their support for uh, our work and the relationship they already had with Australia and their, their support for Indigenous health and occupational health, I think, was really unmatched. Um, so it was a hard decision, but it definitely made the right decision. It sounds like a good decision. Mm. Um, so, so what's what's the plan for you um, in terms of getting through your PhD? You might not know what your plan is. What hap- what happens then? The PhD will probably take around three years, but in that time, I want to go back and forth to Australia and continue to practice clinically and finish my clinical exams to become a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a lot of work between now and then. After that, I would really like to work in both realms of public health and clinical medicine, continue to treat occupational injuries. So my day-to-day practice in Australia is working in an occupational injury clinic. Okay. So to give you an example. Tell us about that. So to give you an example, the last couple of weeks I was in Australia, the why I love this work is it just varies so much and we get to see so many different people from all walks of life. So I'd see stonemasons who had silica medicals for silicosis lung disease. Mm. Um, I'd treat field technicians out out in regional areas who had asthma from chemical exposures. I'd talk to banana picker farmers from all over Queensland who had musculoskeletal injuries and do telehealth with them. Um, We'd work with miners, construction workers. Uh, I'd see a lot of people with psychological injuries um, that were related to work. And I also treated workers with lead poisoning just before I left um, from Brisbane as well. So that I think it's really important work. I think workers really appreciate being able to talk to you um, acutely. Uh, obviously, everyone is very concerned when they have an injury at work and they want to get back to work as soon as possible. Um, so that work I really want to keep doing while I'm doing the PhD. But like I said to you earlier, that Without, if we don't understand the root cause of a problem and the evidence is not good, we don't really know the scale or the scope of the problem and the response can be pretty bad at times. So I think the evidence needs to improve in this area so that we can, as clinicians, ensure we're providing the best care for these workers. Have you always wanted to be a doctor? No, definitely not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No. No, no, my parents would say the same as well. So I... um, I did business and science undergraduate degrees. Okay. And where, where was I, that? That's in Queensland. You're in, you're in Brisbane. Yeah, that was in Brisbane at QUT. Um, so during that time, but I, I've worked in Indigenous health with the clinics since I was a teenager. And one of my first jobs was when I was 18 uh, for Adrian Carson, who's now the CEO of the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health. Mm-hmm. And he gave me, gave me a job to do policy briefings for all the politicians in Queensland for the state election on Indigenous health data. Okay, yes. So I quickly taught myself how to use geographical information system software and other bits and pieces to put together these policy briefings for the election 
on Indigenous health, essentially. And that experience really sort of changed my perspective about how you can use health data to inform politicians. And then we also use that same data to inform the clinics. So how you use health data to inform clinicians and, and primary healthcare practices. And actually get that, things done and change things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that sort of stirred my interest in epidemiology and and really is what made me choose to do the masters in epidemiology. And then from that, yeah, the I did the epidemiology masters with probably four or five other doctors mm. um, who were very persuasive in how the two link together and how you can do uh, such good work as a clinician, but also as an epidemiologist. So has Brisbane always been your home? Yeah, Brisbane's always been home, Justin. So both both my parents are from Brisbane area. Um, grew up in the Redlands sort of area, if you know Brisbane at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Went to Iona College up in Brisbane. And mum's family are from Stradbroke Island, if you've been there at all. Uh, I've not been to Stradbroke, no. I've been up around there, but not never there. It's a beautiful part of the world. I highly recommend it. But um, so I still got lots of family that live on Stradbroke Island and Brisbane always be home. I've got two great brothers. One's a lawyer and one's an economist, both doing great things. Um, so can't wait to be back. This is actually the first year in 14, 15 years since I haven't worked with the Indigenous clinics in Brisbane. And I understand as part of your work that you do a a mentoring program um, with Indigenous medical students as well. Is that right? Yeah, I've done a number of little things, but one of the the, the mentoring program was probably whilst I was at med school, I developed a peer tutoring mentoring program for Indigenous medical students. Mm. And that that program I really established because I saw a gap in uh really poor outcomes uh for indigenous medical students just like we see poor outcomes in indigenous students at university in general um in in australia and so i I developed this mentoring program where each weekend i would write up an exam and make the students sit an exam every sunday morning um so by the end of each year they would have done like 40 or 50 exams and The, um, the outcomes were sort of unprecedented where, as you can imagine, you, you do that sort of work and they, they put the work in and they got amazing, amazing outcomes and it really changed the culture of the program where uh, the older students sort of continue to do the same thing for the, the new students coming in. And Shane Dram, the um, ex-football player, was the head of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit at the time. And me and him to this day still talk about the success of that program and how proud we were of the outcomes of just getting all these students through and improving how many Indigenous medical doctors we have. Was the dropout rate um, higher than, than normal? Uh, yeah, most definitely. It's, it's a difficult program, Justin, and medicine, university in general, I find... It's not easy. I mean, it's it's hard work. You've no, really, and, really got to apply yourself. And some of the teaching, like I, I like teaching now, and I do a lot of teaching myself. Okay. And I, I find that sometimes when you have experts in certain areas, they teach to their level and they don't teach to their audience. 
Mm. If you know what I mean, it's a very and, good point. Yes, yeah, and mate, a lot of these, a lot of people, a lot of teachers I've had, they don't teach their audience, and it comes across in the wrong manner. And then I used to always say to the students, "I'm going to teach you two things. I'm going to teach you what you need to pass the exams and what you need to be a good doctor." Mm. And the two are not not the same thing half the time. <laughs> Sounds like very good advice. Yeah. Um. What about what? What's your view on? Um, the health system in Australia for Indigenous Australians and whether we're doing a good job or or not or otherwise um, with respect to improving uh, life expectancy, general health standards, everything that goes with it? It's a a big question to ask. Um, I think what I would say is I'm optimistic about the outlook. Mm -hmm. I think think it does require a long-term commitment uh, the new closing the gap refreshes have highlighted many areas that we need improving, particularly child health, chronic disease prevention and management, and probably injury and mental health and cancer care. But my, I can only talk from my experience and our mantra in Southeast Queensland, probably for the last 15 years, has been to try and support and improve comprehensive primary health care and early intervention. And this is why we set up the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health in Brisbane. This is why we focus on preventative healthcare so much and and health assessments to detect chronic disease early. Um, you may have heard of our Deadly Choices program or seen the football jerseys. Yeah. So this is also why we have programs like Deadly Choices to ensure prevention is where it needs to be, not just in the four walls of the clinic with the doctor, but out in the community and out in the schools. So I think that's probably the first thing I'd say is I'd like to see continued funding and, and uh, long-term commitment into Aboriginal community-controlled services and primary health care. The second thing I'd probably say is I think incorporating social and cultural factors into, into responses in health has been undervalued. It's, it's starting to improve, but has been undervalued um, historically. I think there needs to be a bigger focus on social issues in Indigenous health. And Jody Curry, the CEO of the Brisbane Aboriginal Medical Service, has really been a champion of incorporating social services into health and trying to improve things like Indigenous housing, uh, Indigenous child services and community services in Brisbane, which I think is really important to really have comprehensive primary health care. And, yeah, the third thing is, like me and you have just discussed, is around the evidence base, I think. We need to increase the evidence base in a lot of different areas in Indigenous health and occupational health. And um, I think once we do that, we can ensure that uh, we're really providing the appropriate policies and and clinical practice. Yeah, it's a great answer. Let's just say your your PM for, you know, the day or the week, where where would you where would you target your focus on on trying to on trying to fix things if you could? I, I think. Prevention. I, I honestly, the College of Physicians came out with a article last week, I believe, on the lack of funding in prevention and public health uh, care from the budget from two weeks ago. I think if we continue to look at health as a spectrum, we think about disease prevention and injury prevention, and then we think about acute treatment and long-term treatment, Obviously, we want to put more dollars into the prevention, but we can only do that if we take them out of certain other areas. But I think if I was in that that position, I would focus on 
what are the key areas that we can improve funding in prevention of disease and prevention of injury. I think I would improve funding for Aboriginal community controlled services and primary health care in general. I think the other thing is probably that topic we talked about earlier about that integration between the tertiary system and the primary health care system. Mm-hmm. Having, having a federally based primary health care system really and a, a state-based tertiary system has its own difficulties. And I've seen as a clinician myself, you see people get lost in that uh, in that system by having a federal primary health care system. And that Alaska model really highlighted that you want to try and pick up those people getting lost in a system that, that don't have good primary health care, that are presenting continuously to the hospital system, uh, but missing out really on comprehensive primary health care. So I think that integration is what I would look at as well. Have you ever thought about uh, changing things from the inside out and, and having a run in politics at all? No, I can't say I have, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I I think Ken Wyatt and certain others, I, I really appreciate what they do and yes. um, it's, it's a really hard job. Uh, I would love to contribute any way I can, um, but... I think at the moment as a clinician and as a researcher is probably the best way. And, but I'm happy to, I'm open to changes. And I think having non-linear career paths is a great thing for everyone. Well, we wish you luck uh, in your studies and um, enjoy it in Canada, however long you're there. And we will follow your career and success with, um, with great delight. So thank you so much for joining us on The Scholars today. Mate, thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, I appreciate you having me and just wanted to shout out to the foundation and the great job they do. Uh, I haven't worked with a foundation that's been better with communication than the John Monash Foundation, Alex, Jacinda, the whole team. And anyone who's looking at uh, doing good research overseas, have a look at the foundation. It's not an onerous application um, and it's, it's very worthwhile. And they're great people too. So uh, here, here. Thank you. Cheers, Brett. Thanks, Justin.